Well, today we come upon a brand new study in the scripture that shall take us several years to get through. It is our box series, and it is a series on the gospel of Matthew. Now, anytime you begin a study of a book in the Bible, it is essential that you have a groundwork and a good introduction to understand the book as a whole. To get the big picture of Matthew before you enter into the the woods and start picking apart the trees and shrubbery. It's like a flyover where you see all of it together. So there's a number of questions to be answered on the study of any book of the Bible. So I'm so glad so many of you are here to hear the beginning parts of this. Because as we go through the study, you will understand Matthew so much more when you understand who he was, the audience that he was teaching and preaching to, the recipients, and the characteristics and theme of the gospel. Like any good book, there's a thesis. There's one great thing that the author wants you to take away from the book. It's the great moment in the book where you walk away and put that book down and go, I got what he wanted me to see. And the, and the, the quality of any book is, is your ability to, to see what he wants you to see. Well, BOK, Box Series, stands for the theme of the Gospel of Matthew, which is that Jesus is the King. And Box stands for Behold our king. Behold the king. That's Matthew's big emphasis. So I want to take us through a series of PowerPoint to help us understand, first of all, who was Matthew? Well, scripture tells us he was a tax collector. He was a tax collector. Well, that causes the fellow Jews, his fellow Jews of the day to see him in a particular way. First of all, they viewed Matthew, Levi, same man, as a traitor. He was viewed as a traitor. Jews had been conquered by Rome. They were under the thumb of Rome. But that allotted certain opportunities to those who lived in the land And one of them was to collect taxes from the people. Now the way a tax, number one, he's working for a foreign government that is oppressing your nation. It was as if Russia took us over and set up an office and some of you went down there and got a job with the Russian government. But it gets worse than that. Because the way the tax collectors worked was this. They collected pretty much what they wanted from the people. And it could vary from person to person. If they liked you, if you were a friend of Matthew, you were taxed at a certain level. But if he didn't like you, you got a heavier tax. Now the way the tax collectors were paid was that whatever they charged over what Rome wanted, they kept. You see the problem in the system. They were traitors to Rome, but they were also greedy Because the more they could get from you was the more that went back in their pocket. Now we'll learn in a moment that Matthew was a rich guy. He's going to throw a big feast. So he was doing real well on the backs of his fellow Jews. 
So uh, he was also seen as a thief. This is how men viewed Matthew before Jesus ever passed by the office of receipts. But sometimes, in fact, all the time, God sees us differently than our fellow man sees us. When Jesus walked by where Matthew was sitting, he saw, first of all, a man with a pen. He saw a man with a pen. You know, most of the disciples didn't write, but Matthew was educated. He could write. He was a man who kept the receipts, who wrote your name and the amount. He was a man who could write. That's why we have the gospel that we do. Also, God saw that he was a man with a systematic mind. Those of you who are accountants, if you are one, have a systematic mind. You've got to be, have a systematic mind to be in an office of receipts. You've got to be good with numbers. You come have me do your taxes, it's going to be a mess. You want somebody with a systematic mind. When Matthew wrote his gospel, it is systematically beautiful how he lays it all out. I'll give you one example. In the genealogy that we're going to deal with in the coming weeks, There are three sets of 14 generations. Three perfect sets of 14 in each generation. Three sets of 14. You say, well, that's how it laid out. That's not how it laid out. In the second set of the genealogy that we'll see, there were more than 16, 14. There were 16 or 17. He drops two or three names in order to box it in for 14. Now, he has reasons for dropping the two and three, and you'll see that when we get to the genealogy. But Matthew was a man who recorded the sayings of Jesus in a very systematic, organized setting. That's important. Well, who was the gospel written to or for? It was a gospel written for the Jews. This is a distinctly Jewish gospel. Sixteen times throughout the book, this statement is given. That this was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet. Over and over again, Matthew, in recording the events of Jesus' life, follows it up with this. These things were done to fulfill what the prophets have said would happen. He takes all the, the life events of Jesus and ties them back into prophetic utterances of the Old Testament. There is verse and chapter saying that the Messiah would do this, he would say this, that this would happen to him. Sixteen times, Matthew refers to that. Mark has 34 references to the Old Testament in his gospel. Luke has 58 references to the Old Testament. John has 40 references to the Old Testament. Matthew has 96. More than double the other ones. Well, what's the point of that? He's talking to a Jewish crowd. If you are going to convince a Jew that Jesus is Messiah, you must convince them from the Old Testament scriptures. Any Jewish evangelist, that's, that's just 
Evangelism 101 for them. You begin with sharing Old Testament scripture. This is how the Messiah pulled it all off. Notice the flight into Egypt. When Joseph took his family down to Egypt, chapter 2, prophesied. This is just a few of the examples. The slaughter of the children down in Bethlehem by Herod the Great, prophesied. That he'd be brought up in Nazareth, prophesied. The use of his parables, his triumphal entry, the betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. Just a few examples of things that were prophesied that he would do, that he would say, that would happen to him. And it's all in the Gospel of Matthew. It is a Jewish, Jewish gospel. Even though it's a Jewish gospel, let's look at the treatment that the Pharisees got. Now, in in Matthew 23, 2, Jesus reminds his followers to be respectful. They sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they do, do it. But don't follow how they live. Give you, give you some instances in Matthew that he includes. If you think he's going to be easy on the Jews, take a look at it. John the Baptist calls them the Jews, a brood of vipers, the Pharisees. They complained that he eats with the sinners. The Pharisees in Matthew ascribe his power to Satan. Jesus' power to do miracles is ascribed to Satan. They have a plot to destroy him. That's clearly given in Matthew. The murder of the prophets, Jesus said, is recorded in Matthew. Jesus says that the Pharisees are evil plants that need to be rooted up. So if you think Matthew's going to take it easy on his fellow Jews, he does not. He does not. It's scathing. One of the longest exposés on the wickedness of the Jewish nations is in Matthew. Okay, what else? He has an interest in end times. Matthew has an interest in how this age is going to wrap up. Notice in Matthew 24 is the fullest account of prophecy that you have anywhere in the Gospels. Fullest account, Matthew 24. The parable of the talents about the Lord's return and the reward to those who have done well, the wise and the foolish virgins, again, about the return of the king. And lastly, the sheep and the goats, and how in the end he will separate those two in chapter 25, 31 through 46. So he has an interest in end times. What else about the gospel of Matthew? It is by and large a teaching gospel. You have more degree of the teachings of Jesus Christ than in any other gospel. Mark, it's all about what he did with a little bit of teaching. Luke, some more teaching, but not like Matthew. Notice the characteristics. There's the Sermon on the Mount recorded for us in chapters, two whole chapters, on simply how he talks and what he says. There are the duties of the leaders of the kingdom in chapter 10. There's the parable of the kingdom, chapter 13. 
There is the greatness and forgiveness of the kingdom, chapter 18. And there is the coming of the king, chapter 24 and 25. It is essentially a teaching gospel. Now, before we get to some essential things about the gospel, I want to show you a little bit about Matthew himself. So open your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew. And go with me to chapter 9. Again, in an introduction to the book, we should get to know the author. Isn't it interesting that God uses a man who was hated by the Jews to write a gospel to the Jews? Isn't that fascinating? He was a traitor, a thief, greedy in the eyes of the people, and yet God, he's the very one God used to pen the gospel to his own people. Isn't it beautiful, the change that he makes in people's lives? Chapter 9 of Matthew, in verse 9, we have the calling of Matthew. Now, he's writing his gospel. He includes his own call within the gospel. Mark does, Luke does, John doesn't, but the other two synoptic gospels do include his call. But they are different and distinctly different. Chapter 9, verse 9, it says, As Jesus passed on from them, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now this is where the story goes differently, and I want us to take the time for you to look at the other Gospels with your own eyes. I'm not going to refer to the verses, I actually want you to turn to the other Gospels. Because at this point, the story differs, but in a very distinctive way. So, let's read verse 10, and then we're going to go to Mark. Notice he rose and followed him in verse 10 as Jesus reclined at table in the house. Let's stop there. I want you to go to Mark, if you will, Mark chapter 2. Flip over one gospel. Flip over or scroll with your iPad. Mark chapter 2 in verse 13. Mark chapter 2. Verse 13. I'll give you a moment because, I, again, I want your eyes to see this. Chapter 2, verse 13. This is Mark's account of the calling of Matthew, also known as Levi. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, same terminology, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, view marks the difference. Matthew says he reclined in the house. Mark says he reclined in his house, meaning Matthew's house. Now, which house did he recline in? Matthew's house. But Matthew does not call it his house. 
he refers to it as the house. Now remember, this gospel was written in 40 or 50 AD, some 15, 20 years after Jesus did and said these things. Was, did Matthew forget whose house it was? No, he just chose to refer to it as the house, not his house. All right, let's go to the next one. Go to Luke. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. And we'll go down to verse 27. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. This is Luke's account of the call of Levi, and it differs some from the other two. Luke is a historian who, and a historian always gives you more detail in in the narrative. Chapter 5, verse 27 of Luke says, And after this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. All three agree on these points. But notice how Luke handles the next section. Verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast. In his house. Adds color, doesn't it? Gives description. But why does Matthew, why is he silent at this point? Why does he just refer to it as the house and not his house and not a feast that he made? Well, first of all, Luke tells us this, letting us know that it was his house and that he had the money to throw a feast for a lot of people. He was wealthy. But Matthew doesn't want you to know he's wealthy. He could really care less. Do you see the effect on the author as he writes his gospel and what Jesus has done for him in all these years? That which was important, his house, is now the house. The ability to throw a feast for a lot of people meant nothing to Matthew but the fact that what Jesus is doing there. Well, it goes on. Let's go back. And then we're going to flip back and forth. So just be ready to do it. We're back in Matthew now. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Let's see more of it. So, verse 10 of chapter 9 of Matthew. Jesus is reclining at the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus. Now, don't you love that? <laughs> he brought his crowd. He didn't try to clean up his friends. He just brought his friends. Despised. This was the group of the rejected ones. And here is Jesus reclining. They didn't sit in chairs back then. They sat on large pillows on a very low table. They rested on one arm and fed themselves with the other hand. This is how they ate. And here's Jesus, comfortable with these tax collectors. Notice verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, notice not to him, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See how much they hated him and hated them. Notice Jesus' response in verse 12. It's going to be, well, I tell you what. Let's pause there and go back to Mark. Let's see what Mark and Luke say about Jesus' response before we go back and see what happened to Matthew. So we're back at Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. 
Mark chapter 2, scan your eyes down to verse 17. This is Jesus' response to that question, according to Mark. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm here for sick people. That's who needs the doctor. That's all Mark says. All right, let's go to Luke. Let's take a look and see what Luke says in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Let's see his response at what he records of this answer of Jesus. Verse 31, chapter 5 of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus answered them in verse 31, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So he adds the word repentance. By the way, when you see differences in the gospel, it's just how the writer has chosen to use the words that Jesus used. He used all the words, but sometimes they'll leave a word out that he used. That he didn't, Jesus didn't say different things. If he put the three things together, he said all of them. But the writers had the liberty by the Holy Spirit to leave some stuff out that they wanted to. Now, take a look at Matthew. Turn back to Matthew. By now you should know where Matthew is. Chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Notice... Let's begin in verse 12. Now you have Matthew's account of what he heard Jesus say. Matthew chapter 9, verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Matthew includes a quote from Hosea 6.6. Not only because it's a Jewish gospel, but because what Jesus said had great impact on Matthew himself as he sat, and he never forgot this quote from Hosea 6.6. He says in verse 13, "Go," Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Exactly what burned into Matthew's soul is what he wrote down. Matthew had sacrificed and was proud of the feast possibly that he'd thrown for Jesus. Proud of his home. Sacrificially killing the lamb and killing the cow and bringing in all this food. And and so happy that Jesus called him from that tax collector. He wanted to impress Jesus with the big meal, the big feast. And Jesus said, go and learn what this means And I doubt the Pharisees learned it, but I guarantee Matthew never forgot it. Jesus said, what I want, I want steadfast love. That's what's out of Hosea 6.6. I want mercy. I don't want your stuff, Matthew. I don't want your feast. I don't want what you can give me. I want what I can give you and what God can do through you. Showing mercy and love to other people. What a powerful 
message to Matthew himself. That's why he includes it. He ends it like the other ones that I came not to call the righteous, notice, but sinners. I say in word of application, Jesus doesn't want anything you've got. He doesn't need your talents. He doesn't need your funds, your money. The church could use them, but Jesus doesn't. <laughs> Always careful when the preacher says, you know, he doesn't want your money. Well, I quit giving. No, don't do that. Don't do that. But his desire and goals for you is not what you can add to the ministry or to the kingdom. He wants our steadfast love. He wants you to see his steadfast love. And for those of you who have been taken advantage of all of your lives, been raked over the coals, God does not take advantage of his followers. Some of you have been taken advantage by churches and ministries, abused, and all your value to that ministry was what you could pull off in the fellowship. That is not true in this place. Because that's not true with Jesus Christ. He cares about you. Loves you. All right. I borrow from G. Campbell Morgan at this point. I never open any book of the Bible without studying a good book called Bible Surveys by G. Campbell Morgan. He is the best at breaking down a book of the Bible. He uses two basic elements, the the abiding appeal of the book. What's, what's, what's the appeal to you? What is this book asking from you? What is it all the way through demanding from us? And then he goes into the central message of the book. So again, I give credit where credit is due. This is G. Campbell Morgan's thoughts. The abiding appeal of Matthew is found in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. So turn there. Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. It is also echoed, echoed, well, let's go to chapter 4. The first one is John the Baptist, I believe, and the second one is Jesus. So let's, let's see it as it rolls off the tongue of Jesus in chapter 4, verse 17. The first instance of this saying is by the forerunner of Christ, which is John the Baptist. But in chapter 4, verse 17, the abiding appeal is seen in the first command of when Jesus began to preach. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent. The abiding appeal of Matthew is repent. Now, what does repent mean? Good question. There are two different references and two different thoughts about what repentance means in the Scripture. The first is more familiar to us than the second. I would suggest it's the second that Jesus had in mind here. The first is to be sorry for sin. When you're aware that you've sinned, to be sorry for that. To turn from that. To stop living like that. That's one thought, an idea of repentance it's a bona fide thought in Scripture. Scripture does talk about that, but I don't think that's the reference here. Repentance in this context, I believe Jesus was talking about, it means to think again. To rethink. 
because you've been thinking wrong. It has nothing to do about behavior. It has everything about what you believe and how you think about God and how you think about Christianity and how you think, how we think about life itself. It's like this. We have been climbing a ladder all of our lives. And Jesus comes along and says, not only is it the wrong ladder, it's the wrong wall. You've been climbing on the wrong wall. Repentance means coming down off the ladder, picking the ladder up, and carrying it over to the correct wall. We've been climbing on the wall of self-centered mentality. We've been climbing from our mother's womb on the idea, what's in it for me? Now I know my granddaughter, at this point, newest one, looks like an angel, and she is. But in the heart of that sweet little girl, someday will come out, no! And then she'll get smart. And she might be a little deceptive. Lorelai came to me last week. I was watching both the kids. And Lorelai came and she said, Pop, she said, I need a piece of chocolate. My sugar's low. I said, how do you know your sugar's low? And with a quiver in her voice, she said, I'm shaky. I got her a piece of chocolate. A few minutes later, Landon walks up to me. She says, Pop, I want some chocolate. I said, no. And he looked at me like, I said, she had a medical emergency. You didn't have one. <laughs> Little girls, they're smart. We boys were like, just give it to me. <laughs> girls come with a plan. All of our life, we prop that ladder up on the wall of, I'm going to get what's coming to me. Quit taking stuff away from me. It's me. It's my kingdom. And if you get in my way, I'll mow you down. We don't come out and say that, but that's basically where we're coming from. Jesus comes along and says, you're thinking about life all wrong. Your life is not about you or your kingdom. It is about God and his kingdom. Notice he begins with the message of repentance. He doesn't explain all the beauty of the kingdom that's coming and then says, based on all this great stuff, make your decision. Oh, no. Because we'll never see the authority of the kingdom of God and the king himself unless we begin to think differently about our lives. That this life is not about us. It's not about our purse or pocketbook or our wallet. It's not about the pats on the back. It's not about getting our piece of the pie. It's about what God wants to do in and through us. So the abiding appeal all the way through is repent. What's the central teaching? Notice verse 17. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. That's what it means. Has drawn near. The kingdom and authority of heaven has been brought down to this earth right here in our midst, not up there, down here. Now what does it mean the kingdom of God is here? 
It is the central teaching of the Gospel of Matthew. Well, we live in a democracy. Okay? You know how democracy works. A republic, if you will. It works on this basis. At least it's supposed to work on this basis. In order to be a member of a democracy or a republic, it is required that you obey the laws of the land. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. That the rule of law applies to everyone throughout this nation. From the bottom to the top, no one is above the law. We take that with great pride in this nation. No one is above the law. Now again, that's idealistic and it's not what's going on in our... But that's the way it's supposed to work. Okay? When things are good, those who do evil are punished quickly. It just works good like that. But a kingdom doesn't work that way. You know that. A kingdom, we don't live in a kingdom. There are no written laws and rules in the kingdom. Because the king is the law. He is the ruling authority. He can do what he wants. He can, Steve, he can bring you in and put you to death just because you look the wrong way. He has the authority of life and death in his hand. No one questions him. And guess what? They don't vote and elect him every four years. You get a bad king, you've got to just ride it out. This is the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven implies that a king has arrived. And those who make up his kingdom, this is, this is the big picture. Are you ready? This is the thesis. This is the whole deal. This is what we're going to spend the next two years on. Behold our king. Are you sub- and I submissive and, and subject to the king of authority and the king of heaven? We don't live in that kind of world and culture, do we? Everybody's truth is good, isn't it? Everybody's reality is their reality. As long as no one spits in your soup, just let them live like they want to live. Not so in Christianity. We have a king. 